So let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. We've been working our way through Ephesians for about a year and a half now. And um, we made it all the way to the middle of chapter 4. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Listen to the Word of God. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Father, we ask this morning that You would make Your book live for us and that you would show us ourselves, and that you would show us our Savior. We confess and believe what your word teaches about itself, that it is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, it is a hammer which breaks the rock, it goes out and accomplishes things, and then comes back to you bringing results every single time. It never returns empty, but always accomplishes what you have purposed for it to do. And your word is wonderful in that we can have the same word go forth into a group of people and it will accomplish different things in different lives according to what needs to be done, for that is your wisdom and that is your power. And so we look to you and to you alone. We did not come here this morning to hear a man speak, but rather we came to play our role in a drama. When the people of God are in the house of God on the day which the Lord has set aside for His worship and the man of God stands in the pulpit and speaks the Word of God to His people, wonderful things happen. And they're all of you. So make me disappear. Cover my errors and my stupidity and glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God is a, an interesting being. He has a funny way of operating. His nature is such that He upholds everything that exists, both visible and invisible, both natural and supernatural. He upholds all things in their existence moment by moment. We've spoken about that before. I won't belabor it again. He overrules His universe, and He does so by His providence. His power and His might are such that nothing happens apart from some expression of His will and His power. And ruling all of this does not cause Him any strain. It doesn't tax His abilities. He never gets tired. He never gets distracted. His omnipotent right hand never shakes. It never shudders in weakness. 
And yet God has so ordered the creation and done so in such a way that He delegates the administration and the management of His created order to lesser beings than Himself, beings that He Himself created, and it is His good pleasure to do so. Of course, the angels are the first species of created beings which He empowered and which He made responsible for certain tasks. And so, for instance, we find very early on in our Bibles, in Genesis 28, we see Jacob, and Jacob is spending the night at a certain place which came to be known as Bethel, the house of God, or we call it Bethel today, run the words together. And, and he has this vision in his sleep of a, of a giant ladder or a giant staircase. The Hebrew word that is used there is unique in the whole Bible, so we're not quite sure exactly how to translate it, but it's related to a word that is used a lot in the Bible, and it's a word for a highway or a, a raised walkway. And so I, I like this, the, the translation stairs instead of ladder, but whichever, it's fine. At the top of the, of the stairs in Jacob's vision is, is heaven, and at the bottom is earth. And he sees in his vision angels ascending and descending the stairs. Well, what were they doing? Well, they were carrying out their responsibilities here on earth. And then they were reporting back to their superiors to talk about the results and to receive further instruction. And then down the stairs they'd go again, getting a good angelic cardio workout along the way. And their superiors that they reported to are the archangels. Arche in Greek means, among other things, head or ruler. And if you think about it, if you know anything about the history of the people of God, there was really only one family that was the focus of God's attention, and that was the, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there weren't that many people for, for angels to pay attention to that were in, a part of God's redemptive purposes. So all those other angels had other things to do on earth. And God delegated it to, to, their, uh, to their wisdom and their power and their decision-making. He delegated those things to, to those angels. And so we find in the, in the New Testament we have language that speaks about rulers and authorities and principalities and thrones and dominions and powers. What are those? Well, those are angelic offices. Those are angelic positions of responsibility. And it seems that for reasons only known to himself, that God did not take away those positions from the various angels who joined Satan's rebellion. He, he left them pretty much in charge of whatever they were in charge of before the fall. And that's one of the bases on which he's going to judge them. In other words, he's going to come judgment day when it's time to judge the, the wicked angels. He will say to them, you had a job, and your job was to manage this on my behalf, and you didn't do that job. You failed at that job, not just once in a while, but constantly for millennia. And therefore, judgment has now come upon you. Well, of course, the other being that God delegates to is us, human beings. And we see that, once again, right there at the beginning, don't we? Genesis 1 and verse 24, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves on the earth. 
Now, a lot of people today do not like that word dominion because that, they think it means exploitation, and that's not a proper understanding. Maybe a better way is to say responsibility. Be responsible for the created order, said God. Learn and develop a knowledge base from which you can then operate it successfully, and then you can transmit to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren about how to care for this place that I've given you and made you responsible for. And we still have that position of responsible stewardship over the creation even after the fall. God didn't take it away from us. And we will be judged, like the wicked angels, we will be judged on how well we do at carrying that out. With the entry of sin into the world, we find that things take a very deep nosedive. And one of the things that happens is that anarchy and chaos and violence become an ever-present threat. That's the first thing that Cain is worried about after God judges him for killing Abel. They're going to come and kill me, God. Whoever finds me will kill me because there's violence in the world, and, and the world's not a very good place. And so one of the things that God did was to raise up rulers, kings, emperors. In, in, in the Old Testament, the figures that were raised up among the, the, the children of Israel were, were called judges up until the time they had a king for themselves. And so we have a whole book in the Old Testament called the Book of Judges, and it's a series of portraits of these military spiritual leaders who God raised up among Israel, both to deliver Israel from their enemies and then to establish justice and law and order within the nation of Israel itself and make sure everything ran according to how God had commanded it to run. And this God that we deal with is the God who sets up kings, and he's the God who brings kings low. The king, or the president, or the prime minister, or the premier, or whoever occupies his or her position ultimately is in that position because God put them there. Now that may be a little tough to swallow, but that's what the Bible says. And I would invite you to, to open your Bibles if if you have one, and if not, you can look at it on the screen. But, but in Romans chapter 13, Paul addresses this issue very clearly. And he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of of conscience. For because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to his, this very thing. Pay to them all that is owed to them then, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, that's not a blank check for the authorities to do whatever they want. The Bible helps us to understand through stories like the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and people like that, that we are to obey the authorities unless 
and until they either command that which God has forbidden, they make us, they try and make us do something that God has said, you shall not do that, or else they forbid that which God has commanded. They say, you can't do this thing that God has told you to do. And if they do that, we are to resist to the point of the shedding of our own blood. But unless and until a magistrate commands you to do what God has forbidden or forbids you to do what God has commanded, you obey them because that's what the Bible clearly says. And just to give you a frame of reference, the emperor of the Roman Empire, when Paul wrote those sentences, was Caesar Nero, who was such a unique and wickedly insane man that his own people uh, had myths about him and stories about him. Uh, after he died, and there was this myth running around called the Nero Redivivus myth, which is that Nero wasn't really dead, that he had escaped to the, the sworn enemy of the Roman Empire and was going to come back with enemy soldiers and take the thing open again, over again. They were that paranoid about him because he was that bad. And Paul says, obey the emperor until he either commands which God has forbidden or forbids that which God has commanded. And of course, there were times that he did that, and, and Christians refused, and he had a um, he had a habit of lighting his garden parties by burying Christians up to their chest in the ground, in a hole in the ground, and then pouring pitch on top of them and then lighting it on fire and using burning Christians to light his garden parties. That's the kind of man he was. Now, the reason you obey the magistrate, says the Bible, is because his or her authority comes from God, and to resist them is to resist God. That's exactly what Romans 13, 2 said. Well, God didn't just set up civil authorities, did he? God also set up an authority structure in, for instance, the family, and we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to annoy a bunch of you with that when we get to Romans 5 and 6, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, and then not least of all, he set up an authority structure in the church. And that's the gist of what he's getting at in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Now, last week we noted that this passage speaks about Christ's gifts to men, as Ephesians 4.8 puts it. And we noted that this list of spiritual gifts is unique in all of the Scripture because instead of talking about things that God gives to an individual Christian, like the gift of helps or the gift of giving or the gift of tongues or prophecy, all these other things, uh, that, that instead this passage describes offices, roles, if you will, official roles which God has given to the church to promote its growth and to promote its well-being. And with those offices then comes a degree of authority which is commensurate with the responsibility of the office. And that authority comes from God. And so Paul says God gave apostles, and God gave prophets, and God gave evangelists, and God gave shepherd teachers or pastor teachers. God appointed men, and in the case of prophets, women too, to their positions for the well-being of the church, and each one had a God-given function. Now, we noted last week that as Presbyterian and Reformed Christians, we understand the Scriptures to teach that three of the four offices were temporary in nature. They were given by God to establish the infant church and to nourish it and to provide for it until the Scriptures of the New Testament were complete, and then those offices gradually passed away. But one office abides, and that is the office of the pastor-teacher or the shepherd-teacher. 
Since about A.D. 95, the pastor-teacher has been the linchpin for God's purposes in the church and in the world. Now, God has a plan for this world, and the people of God are His chosen instrument to accomplish His plan in this world. He's telling you very clearly in the Scriptures that that's what He's about. And His plan in the providence of God depends on you as the people of God, those who are truly born again and are not just pew occupiers waiting for a, for a, a horrible ending. He's got a plan for you, and, he, and He's got stuff for you to do, and His plan depends on you doing what He tells you to do. There is no plan B. And that means that your choices and your efforts count. That means real loss and damage come to the cause of Christ if you do not do what God has told you to do and what God expects you to do. And we find this, for instance, very clearly in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, what salt seasons, but salt also preserves before refrigeration and freezing and canning and all these other sorts of things. If you wanted to preserve meat, for instance, you had to use salt. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You say, well, how can salt quit being salty? Well, their salt wasn't pure salt. It had a lot of other minerals mixed in it. And so, for instance, if you let your salt get rained on, it would wash all the salt out and just leave the minerals, and it wouldn't taste any good at all. And, and the salt had then lost its saltiness, and it wouldn't do anything any good. How shall its saltiness be restored? Can't be. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt that's not salty. Rub it into the meat, the meat rots and you lose the meat. It's worthless. Light that's hid under a basket leaves the house dark. You might as well blow it out because it's worthless. And God has given you that dignity. He has placed you in a position of responsibility. And real judgment will come to you from God if you shirk your responsibility. And that is the word of Jesus himself. And the price could be very high. It could be hell. And this in no way contradicts the doctrines of the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of election or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Listen to what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 25. We're not going to read the whole parable, but it's a familiar parable to most of us. Matthew chapter 25, and we're picking up in verse 24. And it says, He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him and said, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? 
then you ought to at least have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for everyone who has will, have more, be, will more be given, and he, who, he will have an abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, God gave you something. He put something in you and trusted it to you for your time here, your pilgrimage on earth, and he expects a gain from his investment. Listen to, listen to Article 13 of the Canons of Dort. In their awareness and assurance of this election, God's children daily find greater cause to humble themselves before God and to adore the fathomless depth of God's mercies and to cleanse themselves and to give fervent love in return to the one who first so greatly loved them. This is far from saying that this teaching concerning election and the reflection upon it make God's children lax in observing his commandments or carnally self-assured. But by God's just judgment, this does usually happen to those who casually take for granted the grace of election or engage in idle talk and brazen talk about it but are unwilling to walk in the ways of the chosen. So, in other words, once saved, always saved, doesn't mean you can live however you want. And if you're determined to live however you want, you ain't saved. Because the truly saved love God so much and are so thankful to Him for plucking them from the fire that they say, how could I fail to serve and love this God? I'll do whatever he asks. Now, what is God's desired outcome? What is it that, that God is after? What is it that, that he's going to use his people to accomplish in this world? What's his goal? Well, there are many ways that, we could, that the Bible expresses this, but I'm, I'm going to just pick out one strand of thought that, that really just kind of fills everything from top to bottom. Habakkuk 2 and verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in Isaiah chapter 11 and the second half of verse 9, it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's it. That is what God is after on planet earth. He is after a state of affairs in which a knowledge of God and a knowledge of his glory that is based on experience in his people, on an intimate relationship with him, is found in everyone that you meet. And it will run as deep as the Marianas Trench in the South Pacific. That's what we're asking for when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are saying, God, you know, a lot of Christians think their job is to get saved and then go, okay, beam me up, Scotty, right? The Star Trek prayer, beam me up, God. This is a horrible place. Jesus doesn't teach us to pray that at all. He says, let heaven come down. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let heaven come, to, let up there come down here. And you and I are part of that because we're heavenly people and we're walking in the heavenlies right now if we're in Jesus. And God has chosen to use his people, his called out ones, the Greek word is ecclesia, his church, 
as a key and necessary part of accomplishing that plan. And the end goal of that plan is that his kingdom would come, and we will know that because when that happens, his will will be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. And that the knowledge of God and the glory of God would shine through us because we are the light of the world. And that would happen until it fills the whole earth. Now, is everyone tracking here with me? Yeah, let, me just, let me just pause. Do you, is everyone understanding what I'm saying here? God's got a purpose. His purpose is to fill the world with his glory, and he's, he's given you a key responsibility and role in that. So, so that's what we're after here. Now, let me just put a couple of important pieces in place to, to finish this picture. What do you have to do? What do you have to become in order to do your part in God's plan to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of him and his glory. What do you have to do? What nasty medicine do you have to swallow to help make that happen? What odious exercise must you endure? What mind-numbing indoctrination does God want to inflict on you to make you a, reasonable, a reasonably capable soldier in his army? Well, here it is. Get ready. It's pretty bad. I'm almost afraid to show it to you because I'm afraid it will cause you to run away screaming from this building. This is the biggest of big pictures. Are you ready? Here's what God wants to do to you. You must arrange your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. That's it. That is the horrible, terrible burden that God wants to inflict on you. Isn't that awful? I mean, I can see why you'd be tempted to bury your talent and spend eternity in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth if that's what God wants to do to you. Isn't he cruel? Wanting you to walk with him in such a way that you experience deep contentment, joy, and confidence. Not sporadically or once in a while or once a week or once a month or every day. Every day, that's what God wants to do to you. God wants you to arrange your life in such a way that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life as you live it in partnership with Him. And while He won't do it for you, He will help you to reach that state of being. That is the whole Christian life summed up in one sentence right there. If you aim at that, Everything else that you're concerned about or that you think you need to do will fall into place naturally. You'll stop sinning because you'll find that sin damages your fellowship with God and it diminishes the energy that flows from Him to you and you'll feel that, you'll sense it and it'll grieve you and it'll cause you to run back to Him in repentance. You say, Lord, yesterday I was walking close with you and this morning I got up and just determined to go my own way and indulge in a little sin, and now here it is, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm miserable. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please come back to me. Please fill me up and draw close again, because I need you. you, you you're you're going to make time to do the, the things that are necessary to experience that fellowship, because it will do everything to make everything else you do easier and more productive. You say, oh, I don't have time to pray. 
Well, determine you're going to arrange your life so that you're experiencing this deep joy and contentment and fellowship with God on an ongoing basis, and, and you'll find out what prayer is for, and you won't struggle to pray. You say, oh, you know, I don't understand the scriptures. You always want me to read the scriptures and memorize the scriptures, and I have a hard time doing that. You know what? When you decide that you're going to make enjoying God the point of your life, God will make sure the scriptures come to life for you because that's what he's given them for. You say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't like school. I didn't do very good in school, and you want me to study all these things. And I say, yeah, because they're going to help you. But you know what? When you're in love with something, you, you, don't, you study it, and you learn, and it's not a burden. You know, somebody, if you just said, here, learn how a transmission works, you know, I probably would have been like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to do that. That seems hard and complicated. But you set down a, a nice British motorcycle in front of me that's a complete basket case and say, now restore this to a thing of beauty. And I'd be like, i got to learn how transmission works. i got to figure out how to do this. Because I want the end result. And you'll do that. You say, well, you know, fasting. Fasting is very powerful spiritual discipline. I don't want to fast. I don't like being hungry. I'm shaky and icky, and I'm worried about my health. It's like you eat too much to be too worried about your health, trust me. But um, you, 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 you suddenly discover that fasting turbocharges your prayers and brings you close to God. You'd be like, I, I need to fast on a regular basis. And it's the same with all the other things that you're doing. You know, silence and solitude, you'll want that because that brings you close to Jesus. You, you, you say, well, how am I going to get all that done and, and then do everything that I need to do to make a living? Well, your work won't be so much of a struggle if you do this because God will be working right alongside of you and he will be adding his power and his wisdom to whatever you and God are working at together and work will become a joy. You say, oh, I, I got these kids to raise. I'm so busy being a parent. Well... Parenting will go much better when you do this because God will be right there parenting with you and so you'll have better outcomes. And if you parent without God's constant interactive help, you're just going to reproduce yourself and your children and why in the world would you want to do that to them? So you learn to live and walk with God like this. And you think about the things that are going on in the world that we're concerned about. We argue about, we get on Facebook and complain about. And there's all these things in the world that need to be set right. And, and we don't even agree on what all of them are half the time. But setting right the things that are wrong in the world will actually start to become possible when you make enjoying God on a daily basis the goal of your life. You know, some of the bitterest, most sour, most pessimistic people I ever knew were the old mainline liberal ministers with a social gospel bent. They were the, the social justice warriors of their day. They're mostly dead and gone now, but when I started ministry in the mid-1990s in the Presbyterian Church USA, they were everywhere. And they were all at the tail end of a career, and they were keenly aware that they had wasted their lives, and they were angry about it. They started off well enough. They started off thinking, first of all, that the ministry and the church were tools to transform society. They really aren't, not in the way they were thinking about, but that's what they thought. And they thought of themselves as activists by vocation. And, and back then, the church had a lot more social capital and a lot more money than it has now. People listened to the church. Politicians listened to the church. 
And so they got into the ministry. We're going to fix the world. And what they were disappointed to discover was that everyone else in the church did not share their activist fervor and sometimes didn't even share their goals. And a lot of people were even opposed to some of their goals. And so they faced congregations week in and week out that were anywhere from apathetic to downright hostile. And eventually these ministers emptied their own churches. And then too, the problems that they had hoped to solve, the systems and structures that they had hoped to amend, the people that they wanted to help, all of that turned out to be a lot harder to solve than they first believed. And by the end of their lives, they had accomplished very little of any lasting value, and they knew it, and they were angry, and they were resentful. I, I had one of them that talked about himself. He said, he said, I'm one of these kind of liberals that likes humanity but hates people. And there were a bunch of them just like that. But when you walk with God day in and day out, full of deep contentment and joy and confidence, you understand that the main thing that each and every human being needs is transformation of their inward being. That's the whole problem is what's going on in their inward being. And that's true whether we're talking about the victims or the victimizers. Everyone needs to be transformed into Christ's likeness. And you become both a conduit for God's power to them and an example of His work in a life. When you walk this way, real productive change is possible because God makes rivers of living water flow out of you to other people who are thirsty and hungry, and they see something in you that is amazing, and they say, I don't know what that is, but I want to be close to it. I want to get, I want to get caught up in that. I want to be like that. And so they see that. And so you become an example. And you also become then a person who can teach and who can show them. And real productive change is possible. Education can't do that. Charitable foundations can't do that. Politics can't do that. Public policy can't do that. Philosophy can't do that. Critical theory can't do that. Only God working through you can do that. In other words, the world will be transformed by you arranging your life so that you are experiencing deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. That's God's plan. There was an, a, a missionary to the Philippines. Uh, he initially started in the 20s, and he managed to stay there all the way through World War II and and after that, his name was Frank Laubach, and he, he said this, I think it's quite profound. He said, the simple program of Christ for winning the whole world is to make each person he touches magnetic enough with love to draw others. Are you magnetic enough with love to draw others? That's what God wants to do to you. And again, he said, it is as much our duty to live in the beauty of the presence of God on some mount of transfiguration until we become white with Christ as it is for us to go down to where the needy people grope and grovel and groan and then to lift them up to new life. So what does all this have to do with the office of pastor-teacher? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's very simple. I have been called by God to constantly set that vision clearly before you 
and to invite you into the kingdom of God so that you can learn from Jesus how to walk this way and to teach you about how to live this life. That's my job. It's also my job to protect you from the errors and the distractions that will be deadly snares which will sabotage you. And there are many, many errors and distractions. Some of them we're aware of and we keep far away from, but Satan is very clever, and some of them infect people who are the most concerned about orthodoxy and pure doctrine. And in the name of orthodoxy, they fall into views and practices that are actually end up being opposed to what the Scriptures plainly teach. In other words, they get one part of the system right, and they think, okay, I understand that. And then they take that conceptual grid and they lay it over here where it requires something different to understand it correctly. It's like, it's like you give them a hammer, and they're like, I got a hammer. And they're hammer, hammer. And then they go over here and you say, oh, now over here it requires a screwdriver. I don't have a screwdriver, I got a hammer. And they just keep hammering. Yeah, that's what they do. And they get every other part wrong because they're determined uh, by ignorance to force every other part of the system into the box that they got right. And even the people who devised the system would, would say, no, you're, you're missing the point here. And I know all about that because I've made those mistakes. And they caused me to be spiritually stuck for years. And it was only the mercy and the direct intervention of God that got me out. So I'm called to teach. I'm called to guard you from error. I'm also called to be an example. And in many of these things, frankly, loved ones, I am only maybe a step or two ahead of you. But that's okay. As long as I keep on walking, I can say, now, I just stepped this step, so I know what's here. So let me tell you what you're getting ready to step into. And then I'll go on another step and bring you along with me. Because I'm, I'm learning too. You know, one of the things that, that just keeps me relatively sane in this job is finally understanding what Jesus teaches me about this job. If you want to look, you can. I didn't make a slide, ask for a slide for this. But in, in Mark chapter 4, there's these little series of parables about the kingdom and what the kingdom is life and what, well, like and what life in the kingdom is like. And in, in Mark chapter 4 and in verse 26, there's a parable about a seed, about seeds. And in Mark chapter 4 and verse 26, he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle, puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. I'm the guy sowing the seed. Now, when, when I got into ministry, and there's a lot of ministers that think my job is to make it happen, whatever it is. I'm coming to this church to make it happen. And so we end up working very hard to make whatever we decide it is happen. And what we end up doing is producing a lot of human fruit that has very little of lasting eternal significance and generally collapses under its own weight after a little while. And Jesus says, no, no, the way of the kingdom is for you to scatter the seed. It grows by itself. The, the earth produces. The, the guy that's the farmer, he doesn't know how. It's a mystery. 
He goes to sleep, he wakes up, comes out, yeah, it's growing. But his job then is when it's ripe to go ahead and harvest the grain. That's my job. I don't know what God's going to do among you. I had all kinds of plans when I came here. I thought they were good plans. They're completely blown to smithereens at this point. And so my job is just to instruct you and to love you and to warn you and to serve you as best as I can. And I I hope I'm going to have more than human fruit. Now, clearly, I am not infallible by any stretch of the imagination. Just ask Don, Dan, Dom, how infallible I am. But I am called by God. And we, in this denomination, have a process for recognizing that call. That's what ordination is. And I had to have certain educational credentials to obtain that, which doesn't turn out to be all that adequate, but it's not without value. I'm also a man who is under authority. I am, I am accountable to the presbytery of the Alleghenies of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. They oversee me. And if I teach falsehood or if I walk in an unworthy manner, any of you are free to go to the presbytery and tell them what you believe is wrong. And the presbytery will come and investigate. And I will cooperate in that investigation. I will even help you with the procedure and the paperwork and the framing of the issues if you want to report me for something you think I've done wrong because I don't want to do anything wrong or harmful. And if the presbytery comes to me and investigates thoroughly and and says, you know, Brian, this is wrong, and they correct me, I will either apologize, repent, and change course, or if it violates my conscience, I will resign. But the corollary to all of that is that I do possess a certain God-given authority as a shepherd and a teacher. And if I am exercising it correctly, then resisting me in the exercise of my office is resisting God. And it's the exact same issue that Paul deals with in Romans 13, 1 and 2 with the civil magistrate. And if you persist, at some point you will incur the judgment of God. The scriptures plainly teach that. You are my sheep. I am your pastor. I was given to you by God for your well-being. You got to choose me for yourselves. No bishop came along and inflicted me on you. You chose me. And my desire, my deepest sincere desire is to love you. It is to care for you. It is to teach you. It is to thrill as I watch you grow in the same way that I thrilled to watch the growth of my children. I am responsible to God for you. And the Bible says that I will incur a stricter judgment if I fail you, if I fall down on the job, if I, if I don't do what he has called me to do. I am under a stricter judgment. Now let that sink in for a minute. And yet at the same time, I know of no other privilege that is higher than this privilege. I know of no other vocation where I get to handle the lively oracles of God in front of the people of God to bring down spiritual power that changes not just one life here or one life there, but if all goes as it's supposed to go, changes nations, changes cultures. 
brings things that are wrong and broken and painful and destructive into the right and sets those broken bones so that they'll heal strong in time. There was a, one of my first sort of baptisms by fire into this understanding of the pastoral ministry came at the hands of Alistair Begg just up the road in about 2001. And there was a man that I met there who was a Scottish minister. He never wrote any books. He never, but he was amazing. His name was Eric Alexander. And he was, he was I, I, I looked at him. I listened to him. I watched him. I talked to him at that conference. And, um, and I said, I would give my right arm to just go to Scotland and follow him around for a year and just serve him as he served the people of God so that I could learn how to be a pastor like that, a shepherd like that. It was the best combination of steel and velvet I've ever seen in my life. Oh, he was good. He's got dementia now. He's living with his children in Glasgow, and he's not doing very well. But he was talking about the pulpit ministry, and this is what he had to say, and I'm going to close with this. There is one thing I want to say to my brethren who are called to be preachers. There is one thing above all other things in the world that we need. It is the mysterious thing we call the unction of the Holy Spirit of God upon our lives and upon our ministry. Charles Spurgeon used to say, unction is that somewhat that it is impossible to define, but you always know when it's present and you can usually tell when it's absent. We need to cry to God for the Holy Spirit's anointing upon our preaching so that the people may not go away with the notion, what a great preacher. Instead, they will say, what an amazing God. How glorious he is. We have been in the presence of God this day. Truly, God is on this place. Oftentimes, God takes the most feeble, weak, despised servant of his and comes down upon him for the simple reason that it would be difficult for anyone else to get the glory. God exalts his name and glorifies his son and melts the hearts of his people because God has come upon this particular instrument of his glory. Above all things, we are to be the instruments of his glory and honor. And we shall find expository preaching the most amazing labor in the world. There is really nothing quite like it. It is utterly consuming. It may sometimes be utterly exhausting, sometimes utterly exhilarating, but it is the most glorious privilege in all the world. On mornings, I find myself getting up from my study desk and walking around saying out loud in the study, fancy being paid to do this. Isn't that one of life's great mysteries of the world? Fancy somebody actually paying you to do this kind of thing. I find it quite overwhelming. It is a privilege beyond my understanding. And that's exactly how I feel. It is a privilege beyond my understanding to be your pastor. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer.